Peace and blessings, everyone. You're now locked in with the baddest chaplain on the globe, Chris B. I want to thank you first and foremost for subscribing. If you're watching us on YouTube, you're watching us and listening to us on baddestchaplain.substack.com, Spotify, Apple, and any and everywhere where you get podcasts. Thank you for that. I want to say we're here today with CEO and founding team member of Push Black, Julian Walker. Push Black is the nation's largest nonprofit media organization for Black Americans. Push Black tells empowering stories on Black life and Black history that truly inspire. Julian hosts Black History Year, which was one of the seven podcasts for history buffs as recommended by the New York Times in 2020. Julian, thank you so much. Welcome to the podcast. How are you, brother? My brother, it's good to be here. I'm good. I'm blessed. I appreciate the invitation. How you been doing? Oh, no. Oh, no, no, it's wonderful, man. It's, it's, it's always a joy. It's always a joy for sure, man. I, I want you to walk us through your journey, man. Like, talk, talk to us about the inspiration um, behind the creation of Push Black. You know, people can see something as it is and like, wow, this looks really great. And they just assume it's an overnight thing. But just walk us through, if you, if you will, what inspired you to say this is what we need to do. Okay, so there's a couple key points that start many years before Push Black was uh, an idea. So I'm going to take you through a little bit of the history of what brought me to this work, and then it'll bring itself back to Push Black. Mm -hmm. Um, So as a kid, I recognized the importance of my racial identity as a black male in America. Uh, I was in an Afrocentric school early on where we were taught like poems and sayings, one of which, you know, was titled, I am a proud African-American child. And Mm -hmm. so from an early age, this was in me. And then when I got a little older, I went to a predominantly white private school after the Afrocentric school lost funding. And I was confronted with race in a different way. And I think I, as many of us who are in those type of environments, uh, are at risk of losing ourselves in order to try to assimilate. Blackness um, was devalued to a great degree, especially when you're uh, maybe one of two black folks in a 20-person class. Yeah, yeah. And so throughout my life, uh, I was always trying to understand um, race, our community, my place in that. And so uh, I began to get more of an understanding in high school um, when I took my first black history class um, and realized how much of our history had been hidden from us. So it's amazing because uh, my grandfather was a civil rights attorney and state legislator in my hometown of Arkansas. Um, Mm -hmm. And I thought I was familiar with, you know, the struggle and the movement and through what I've learned in American history and world history and European history. I was like, okay, I'm sure they they would have covered in school and he would have shared with me or me observing him, you know, all I needed to know about black history. Uh, But when I, got to 12th grade. I was okay, I'm gonna go ahead and take this class. Um, From day one, I was confronted with a different reality. Um, 
and I began to dig deeper and dig deeper. We had, we had a teacher that encouraged us to question more about the sort of mainstream narratives and status quo, mainstream ideas about race and our history. Um, so that set me off on a different kind of journey of questioning and uncovering and realizing that uh, we've been here before as a people. We aren't new to this world. We aren't newly coming into what it means to be a civilized people as they want us to believe. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, all the, the true history points to the fact that we have been the creators of civilization for thousands of years, civilization mm -hmm. that influenced, you know, what are the so-called classical civilizations that right. uh, the dominant society um, holds in high regard. So once I had that perspective, I began to see myself differently and I began to see our people differently. So it went from seeing us as objects of oppression, right? With the history being slavery, civil rights, Obama, present that was previous <laughs> understanding of black history <laughs> to an expansive thousands of year long tens of thousands hundred thousand year long history that involves a group of people who have continued to build right so instead of an object of oppression seeing myself as uh, an agent of victory continuing to yeah. continue the legacy of building civilizations um, and realizing that our experience here is blip on the radar in the grand scheme of things. And so that empowered me and that uh, made me want to uh, share that perspective with others. So that led mm -hmm. me and um, and Daryl, who's the founder of Push Black, uh, mm -hmm. who we went to school with and who I went to high school with too. Right, um, right, right. Good friend of mine. Um, when we got to college, we started doing documentary work around an issue in our hometown that was Black History related. It was actually Juneteenth related. It was being, right. it was like back in 07, 08. We were mm -hmm. like, we need to show how this holiday is being uh, misrepresented in order to really be a cash grab in our hometown. And we want to open up people's eyes to the true history. And then uh, we did this documentary. It did that. And we realized as we were using the tools at our disposal to get this to people, we were using early Facebook, early, it wasn't even YouTube, it was Google Video to distribute right. this across the internet. And we got amazing feedback from the community. We had people in other schools in Arkansas that we were partnering with to share this. And everyone that we were covering was like, oh man, either I didn't realize this and I want to share it more, or oh man, I've been thinking the same thing. I'm glad y'all did something. So mm -hmm. we realized the power of media to amplify the concerns of the community uh, or to expose folks to new ideas and different ways of thinking that could then lead towards action. And that led towards action. So we then uh, partnered, we ended up pressuring that radio station that held that money grab Juneteenth concert. Right. They pressured, they were pressured to shut theirs down, move it to a different month, change the name. Wow. You know, after 15, like 10, 15 years of them being in business, that pressure didn't right. do that. And then the local NAACP and some other community organizers uh, reached out and we partnered with them to establish a Juneteenth celebration that was more community centered, rooted in the community, free, open, has community vendors and all that, which is a, a, a different type of vibe, different type of celebration that was really intended to uplift us and help us connect with one another through 
our history. And we saw mm-hmm. at that moment that there's a power in using media to move folks toward, to mobilize folks towards a certain type of action and result that the community could potentially benefit from. So mm-hmm. fast forward, 2015, where um, Daryl and our friend Tark, who we also went to school with, mm-hmm. um, they had this idea to use media to um, try to build relationships with Black folks and affect the racial voting gap. Mm-hmm. They reached out to me. Um, once they had been working on it, they had already received some funding and they reached out to me um, to work on the creative side. And this was, this mind you, was like a year, within a year of the killing of Mike Brown in Ferguson, yes, Missouri. Yes, yes. And the uprisings that came after that. And so I was energized and feeling a sense of urgency to contribute my skills. I just uh, finished uh, a graduate program in film. Daryl had been working in the um, social impact entrepreneurship space. Tarek had been working um, as a canvasser for um, campaigns. And so we brought this sort of energy and these different skill sets to the table. um, And we were able to run a series of experiments toward that end of using media to connect with our community. and then mobilize folks to take action, very similar to the sort of theory of change we realized with the Juneteenth. I don't think it was ever explicitly stated. I later on made that connection as essentially the same type of concept. So Push Black um, in a different name was started around that time, 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt compelled to do it because I was, like I said, coming out of film school and uh, wanted to use my skills to have an impact on our community. So I began um, shaping the content and the creative through testing with the rest of the team to identify the best way to connect with our community uh, are, I mean, not the best, the most effective ways, trying to uncover the most effective ways to connect uh, in order to mobilize folks. After yeah. listening to the community, surveying, doing dozens, maybe hundreds of calls, three of us and others in our network, volunteering, uh, it was revealed that folks were looking for black history in a way that they weren't receiving from public or private sector. And that was a match for my interest um, and what I was able to contribute from a storytelling point and a perspective point. History is not just dates and names. Like, you know, it's usually boringly uh, presented as. Mm -hmm. I see it as all information can be used um, in a narrative way to see what, what does information mean to us as black people? And that may be different than what it means to others. So being able to test stories and connect with our community through history allowed us to then build up a following that went from a couple dozen, a couple hundred right. folks on an email list, on a text message list. Mm-hmm to now being able to reach um, with the press of a button, nearly 6 million black folks um, around the country and reaching a couple million more on other platforms. So that is 
of course, I had to share the history because the work we do. So right. that's what what took us up to the point we're at, um, where Push Black was founded. And then I, of course, skipped a bunch of stuff till now, but I'm okay. sure, you know, we can dig in more where appropriate. Yeah, it makes sense. And makes sense. Let, me, let me give context too. So now the theory that we are running with and what we've been able to show is that we can actually make a measurable uh, impact on the uh, racial voting gap. Right now we run the largest um, voter turnout program digitally out of anybody, of any group, any racial or any interest group that does that. Uh, we run the largest one, which has randomized control trials to back up those numbers. So third party uh, assessments of our program say that there's been millions of folks who have taken voting actions because of the way we've connected with them and mobilized them. Um, yeah. Folks have taken those actions and they probably otherwise would not have taken those actions. So right. now we're using history to empower folks to, to take action. Um, we're using culturally relevant media to empower folks mm -hmm. to take action that can have a tangible impact on our community. And we're looking to continue to expand and diversify the ways that we uh, view storytelling and civic engagement and impact for the community. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I'm just thinking, even going back to, you know, when you talked about that documentary um, that you and Daryl worked on for, for Juneteenth and, and now looking, you know, 15 years after, 16 years after it really being ahead of its time in a way that, you know, uh, Juneteenth was later um, made a federal holiday and we saw <laughs> that sort of uh, missteps, yeah. for, to, to put it nicely, of people saying, yeah. like, how do we celebrate this? Let's make money, and that was and that yeah. was kind of just where their their minds went. I want I want to eat ice cream. Juneteenth. <laughs> why do we both think about the ice cream? That was like, that's exactly where my mind went. It's like yeah. just give them ice cream. That that's nice. Like everybody likes ice cream. <laughs> I, I want to know, uh, Julian. Like when when you think about the importance, because you talked about it in terms of like culturally culturally relevant media. How would you say your preparation as a filmmaker and your experience as a filmmaker lends itself to the storytelling aspects of journalism? Like the same skills that you had to use for filmmaking, you find yourself now using in this journalistic and mobilizing space. Cool. So looking at this opportunity to connect with folks through storytelling from an emotional lens and from a a lens that takes information and puts relevant meaning behind it is what mm -hmm. the key part for us is. And so in terms of our content, a large part is storytelling in the sense that we find a historical moment. It could be a very tiny moment. It could be mm -hmm. one day out of a person's life and we extract meaning from that and we um, share it with our community in ways that our community, our people have been doing for centuries. Right. Um, being able to, to find meaning. And a, a small part of our work is considered journalistic, and that's largely our justice work, where we're right. um, assessing the, um, the effectiveness or lack thereof, largely, 100% rather, of the criminal legal system. And the approach that we take both with that and with the history storytelling is to and this is rooted in my experience as a filmmaker, being able to say, okay, there's certain arcs 
in a story. It starts somewhere. Uh, in film, it's a three-act structure, and right. it has different beats along the way. And you begin to recognize those as you watch films and, and you know the formula. So my initial thought was, okay, Black folks over-index for consuming film and TV. Um, how can I apply what I know in a small way to take folks on this journey that we can use to connect with them in a way that they're familiar with, right? And it's not a one-to-one because you're just like uh, reading versus watching initially. Right. We're working on the watching part, but it's still taking folks on that that beat. Um, I'm sorry, on those series of beats to bring them along someone's journey. So not just right. saying this happened, this happened, this happened. These are the names, dates, places, but this is what this person was thinking. This is how it affected the community. This is what, how they were feeling. This is why they did what they did. And this was where they started. And this is where the change happened. And this is how that change impacts the community and what we can learn from. So taking these different elements of storytelling and applying it to history to make it more engaging and more personal yeah. to help our, us see ourselves in that story. The same way when we're watching a film, we're intended to relate and connect to the main characters the same way uh, Push Black wants our audience. And I think we do a great job of, our storytellers do a great job of having our audience connect with either the individual or the community that's being represented in our stories um, through that storytelling structure. And now we're exploring ways to say, okay, in what ways can we get even more creative um, and think outside of the box because our community has been telling stories for so long? What other means of storytelling that are rooted in our traditions yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. can we extract and tell, whether it's African-American tradition in terms of fables and folk tales or even farther back when we were in Africa and telling stories in a certain way that may be more cyclical than linear it may end in a different mm. place than the western narrative does how can we explore these ways of connecting with an audience um because i, I believe in our theory is once folks have that connection and see themselves um in that story in that legacy mm -hmm. then they can say okay now this is where i continue on this story because i'm part of this this is how i learn from this and then take it on into the real world um, and the actions that I take and the way that I move and interact with yeah. my brothers and sisters. So that's a, a bit about that. Oh, man, that's fascinating, man. That's, I, I love that. And I love thinking about the ways in which you're telling the stories in a way that isn't just a continuation of the like colonialization of our minds. You're telling the stories in a way that, you know, so many folks now are interested in really, uh, bless you, and peeling back all of the layers of the ways in which they've been, you know, their conditioning is that conditioning. They're trying to peel all those layers back and really get back to something that feels much more indigenous for us. And I, and I really appreciate that a, a whole a whole lot. Mm -hmm. I want you to, to, to speak a, a bit more about the importance of Black media, particularly in this time where telling this truth and, and talking about our history is so heavily contested and in some places even outlawed. Like, what makes you feel <laughs> here we are again? You know, how, like, yeah. how do you find yourself and, and this work in this time of, you know, people really wanting to whitewash the history? Yeah. So it's challenges and opportunities. So one of those places that you're alluding to uh, is 
Arkansas, home state that I mentioned, um, they're going hard on trying to stop. Uh, I don't, don't know the current situation, but it, the state has been adamantly against the AP Black history. Of right. course, I mentioned was not AP Black history. It didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And it was another, I think it was an elective. But um, So I can, I can connect and resonate with that and know what it means to connect to history and where that can take us. So I think there's, I believe there's a fear there, right? Imagine a million more folks who have gone through uh, the who've gone through a history course with the right teacher, with the right mindset, right? That can help uncover and unlock their potential and help them feel confident and empowered and inspired to go and do something because it provides a different look at history. So imagine a million more that are going out and building something because of what that true understanding of their history mm-hmm. has unlocked. That's dangerous to the status quo. So what the opportunity is, is for those of us who are aware of that power to find ways to uh, push back. And it's going to look in many ways, in many ways, like what Push Black is doing by circumventing that traditional system, right? So not asking permission or um, trying to negotiate with the state to say, can we do this? But with the power of technology and the way that we can get directly to people um, and bypass the state's efforts to control us, that's the opportunity for push black, but for those, for many others who are also doing work in that space, we're, we're uncovering and questioning and revealing new truths and new mysteries about mm-hmm. who we are, um, what our purpose is. Cause it's not just where we've come from. It's what is our purpose as a people? What are we capable of? How can we use it as a tool to continue building? That's where both the danger to the status quo is and the opportunity and the power for us is. We've been so disconnected from it. So now those of us who can connect to audiences outside of that system, who can educate outside of that system and inspire outside of that system, the opportunity is there for us to um, continue Mm -hmm. building those relationships and empowering folks to go and move in a different type of truth and move with a different mindset, which would then lead to different actions we take, which I believe would then lead to different type of results that we mm-hmm. are seeking and obtaining. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, where do you find yourself in the tension when, when it comes to telling our stories between making sure that we are celebrated as a people while also informing us about the challenges we face? You mentioned a sense of sort of the challenges and the opportunities. And I, I know, you know, having been a teacher myself, there's always the seduction to just, you know, talk about how hard it is. Don't need the road retrod. And that's, that's where, kind of where we, where we end it. Like, where do you sort of strike that balance of saying, no, there's a ton we can celebrate as well. And we can't just be celebrating all the time. We also got to like educate ourselves and, and stay vigilant. Yeah. So I'll give you two examples for me of how that played into where I, how I see the world because of history. So there's one narrative about pre-colonial black 
Africa, Africa in general, that is just this dark continent of barbarians. Um, there's another one of civilization builders. And so when I began to learn what was taught to me and likely you and others listening is that dark nation, that barbarism that white folks have to come and save. Right, right, right. When I began to learn about the civilizations that we built, uh, Mali, Timbuktu, mm -hmm. and most importantly for me, the Nile Valley civilizations. Right, right, right. And realizing the ways that that influenced ancient Greece, ancient Rome, Mm -hmm. And how that information and that understanding of the world, whether it's the math, sciences, religions, how all that came from a black civilization, um, that's switched something for me uh, to say, okay, there is victory in here. We can build, we have built something. We can build something. There's lineages here. You can trace, you can trace the Nile Valley to West Africa. West Africa to the Americas, there's black right. scholars who have done that work. And so there's a connection there, right? We've been taught people that look like us haven't done anything of any significance. And black first is what we should aspire to, right? Being second to somebody or third or fourth, but as long as the black first that's something. But we've been the first to do and understand many aspects of the world and civilization in order to push humanity forward. To me, there's victory in that. To me, one other clear example. Fast forward a couple thousand years during slavery in the Western Hemisphere, uh, 1804, the Haitian Revolution, yeah. mm -hmm. when I began to understand that, oh, it wasn't just that Black folks across the board were complacent and were subservient with no understanding of that didn't want to do anything about slavery didn't right. didn't have the ability to but oh no we were rejected that across the board mm -hmm. um and there were some that are sort of the shining light in terms of the effective way to push back to fight back against oppression and injustice All right so looking at the haitian revolution saying okay this small group of black folks that was directly coming in from mm -hmm. West Africa um, on an ongoing basis were continuing to just combating um, slavery. They went toe to toe with the greatest army in the world at that time, the greatest military, right. which was the French under Napoleon. Right. So realizing that there was oppression existing, there was a hard and real and and just unimaginable for me, for us today. And that there were folks that still had something in them to fight back, still had some gas to say, no, we, something's got to change. We need a different type of situation. We need justice. We need liberty. We need liberation. Right. And they fought back against that, right? So, and that changed the game for me too, being able to see, okay, today, what do we perceive as justice? and how as injustice and then how can we work towards justice and i feel more empowered and inspired to do that because my perspective shift from slavery just being okay black folks 
were treated bad and they took it and that's it to, oh no, we fought back in Haiti and in Americas too constantly, right? And that that uncovered more. Like how, in what ways are we constantly fighting back in big and small ways, right? So that revealed this whole other history, right? The Maroons, Nat Turner, like all Mm. go on and on, right? So it's like, um, and you, you Jamaican, right? You, um, yeah, Mm. there's a history there too. So absolutely. The idea being, how can we connect to those ideas um, was bubbling up in me. So more recently, I began looking at uh, what I now understand as one of those banned books that present day we're talking about. So there's this book, this thought, uh, school of thought around Afrocentricity that I mentioned mm-hmm. by school when I was a kid was rooted in um, by the scholar Malefi Asante. Mm-hmm. And in, unity is needed in order to combat oppression. Yes. But consciousness precedes unity. There's multiple stages of how we achieve of the different areas of consciousness we exist in. Right. And the two sort of primary umbrellas are oppression consciousness and victory consciousness. So oppression mm-hmm. consciousness being this idea of just us being rooted in the oppressive nature of our existence, of our con- the condition that we exist in. Right. Um, and being, to your point, right, it's very easy because it's all around us, right? It's real. How do we can easily talk about all that all day and say, these are the ways that oppression has acted out against us, against us and injustice and how we experience that now and in the past. Like that level of consciousness is important because when you start being aware that something's not right, then that can trigger something. For many folks, it doesn't. And so that's why I think you get a lot of media, a lot of writing that is just rooted in the oppression consciousness. And I think there's mm-hmm. some intentionality there in the type of stories that are fed to us, especially right. about, you know, our history, right? So keeping us in the state of, okay, um, being immobilized to take action because you don't see any way out. But then yeah. when you unlock the victory consciousness, um, which I have experienced, right? And the, those were just two of the examples, but realizing that, okay, we can be victorious. I've seen this before, right, right. both in my reading and because of my beliefs as part, being part of a, a lineage and my, I am my, my ancestors and all that. So being here before, experiencing that, making it this far, I've already come out of something. How else can I tap into that and see myself as part of a lineage of victory and continue pushing, continue pushing, continue pushing mm-hmm. um, in ways that we um, aren't taught to do, aren't, in, aren't encouraged to do, ways that can be perceived and are actually dangerous. Um, even something as opening your mouth and speaking against it is dangerous. Um, yes. So how do you embrace that consciousness of we can be victorious and then take action on that. So I say all that to say, that's where our storytelling is rooted. Now, initially Mm -hmm. it was just the oppression consciousness. It's like expect, especially I mentioned we're coming out of the Mike Brown situation. It's like, okay, we're furious, right? We're just going hard on the content and, you know, they doing this, doing that, and that there's a time and place for that. And that will, that's a good way to get people in and for us to release as a people. Like there's value in there, but if we stay there, 
I, that just, I believe, is feeding the masses yes. more of that traumatic, that re reinforcing that trauma and making us sort of feel like we can't do anything. So how do we, so now the question is, um, we've done that and how can we use that as a gateway to help folks see the victory part? So often you'll see our stories may start there, but that's part of that storytelling art I mentioned. It right. has to change at some point. So how do we uncover bits and pieces of history that say, this is how this individual or community in this story started. This is what they did to take action against that. And then this is what we can learn from that to move forward as we are continuing on uh, to fight for victory and fight against oppression and injustice uh, for our community and uh, ultimately for humanity's sake. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, well said, man. Well said. You know, in another book, I want to commend the audiences. Uh, you may have heard this before. Me talk about uh, the Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James. Like there was something yeah. super transformative for me in reading that and realizing, like, oh man, like the way the Haitian Revolution hit the Western world was mm -hmm. was just such a, um, on one hand, inspiring thing for African people all around the world, but also made you know this whole sense of you know I've, I've talked about in the workshop. I can draw a direct line between slave revolts and three black coworkers having a conversation by their water cooler and their white colleague asking them if they're having a meeting. Like, I don't think that yeah. those things are, 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 are separated yeah. by any means, you know, they're, they're very sure. much connected. They're very much connected. It's all connected. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so as we go, <clears throat> pardon me, into this uh, next year of uh, being 2024, you know, an election year, uh, just, a, a critical year in a variety of ways. Julian, what does Black liberation look like in your estimation in 2020? Yeah, so I am, so the, the tradition that I follow, one of your folks, fellow Jamaican Marcus Garvey, yes, uh, yes. Uh, is one of the key sources for how I view liberation uh, mm -hmm. in terms of institution in term institution building in terms of power in terms of nation building right um, and all that is open for interpretation in a number of ways um so i follow in that step and others that have followed i mean came before him um and so when i think of 2024 i don't believe liberation is going to happen in 2024 it is uh, a long game um, so I can speak to it from a different, from a couple different levels. Yeah. The way we define black liberation largely is the power to practice self-determination, power to define ourselves, the power to love ourselves and those in our community on our own terms, the power to practice self-sufficiency, self-reliance, power to control the institutions that we rely on uh, to both survive and thrive as a people. Um, and that can look a number of ways. Uh, and so there are steps that we take towards that. 2024 as an election year um, is important uh, just as other years are. And I'd say the importance I see it's more so in how black folks are able to 
identify what's important to us, what should be on our agenda, uh, how we unify around that, how we unify around priorities for our community um, in ways that are more offensive than defenses. Often we'll see us re we'll respond, we'll react, right? I mentioned Mike Brown, we all, all were here, when we all weren't here, but we've witnessed the um, George Floyd right, right. killing and everything that came after that around the world. Um, and there's these moments that we will realize, oh, yeah. we're, the, things are happening, things are still happening, and we're going to speak out and act against that, then it'll die down. But the question is, now how do we continue momentum, even when those sort of tentpole moments um, aren't happening? And so that's right. where I think this different consciousness has to come in to guide us and to keep us energized and motivated, even if there's not a direct threat or response to an action. Um, how do we take moments such as the election to really assess what our needs are, find ways to mobilize and organize around those, um, find ways that we can assert and obtain, excuse me, assert and obtain power. Um, but it's not all going to happen overnight, definitely not all in 2024. How do we do that on an ongoing basis toward those ends of building up enough power to really achieve tangibles for our community that allow us to have more control over our lives, practice more self-determination, um, collective self-determination. I don't just mean every individual Black person just do whatever right. they want to regardless, right. but it's more as a community, how are we collectively obtaining and asserting power in order for us to um, survive, one, because there's no rule of nature, no law of nature that says that black folks have to continue to exist in the world, that <laughs> there's no, or that slavery <laughs> is not going to come back. You know what I mean? Right, and right, now, right. So how do we, one, make it so we're learning from the past and creating conditions that are conducive to what we need and what it will take for us to survive and then thrive as a civilization, as people who can build civilizations that um, will look different if we embrace and we, if we reject um, coloniality and we embrace more indigenous ways of being and knowing that are truer to us and what's helped us build in the past. That's what liberation to me looks like today, 2024, and until liberation is achieved. I hear that. I hear that. Julian, I want you to describe a moment um, in this season in your life that makes you feel grateful or that has made you feel a sense of awe. Mm, I felt a sense of awe. <laughs> About a month ago, when I took my kids to Disney World for the first time. Oh, and yeah, right. <laughs> of course. So, <laughs> for one, it's amazing being able to see kids experience joy. Now, I'll be honest, for the longest, I was against it for a number of I was against Disney World for a number of reasons, and I'm I skeptical it. about Disney for reasons that 
it's a whole nother podcast, all right? Right, right. But, right. you know, as parents, there's certain things that we may soften up to and find other ways to navigate. So mm-hmm. um, took him to Disney, had a great time. And I was in awe while at Disney, because I hadn't been since I was a kid, right. about just the incredible storytelling that took place in that in those parks so Mm -hmm. seeing something like you know we've seen finding nemo right where yeah it's uh, you know so going through the finding nemo ride it's like a very cool experience you feel these sort of emotional connection that you felt when you got the the best emotional beats in the movie then you they spit you out into this aquarium i wouldn't even expect in that but the aquarium had like real life sea animals um but also had a very intense focus on caring for nature, right? So there's wow. this piece there too that brought the kids like from the movie to real life yeah. and um, engaged and made it applicable to their world. All mm-hmm. I could think about through that was Push Black needs to build an amusement park for our community. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I get it. <laughs> I get it. Rooted. And so I began to question what, what needs to happen in order yeah. for us to build these franchises that folks can form emotional connections to be drawn to it and come not for the rise and for the entertainment, but also a stronger connection to the actions that must be done to establish a thriving community. Um, There's, I have not been to, I've not heard of a theme park amusement park that is focused on black liberation. And that left me, uh, with that vision in mind, Push Black being the largest nonprofit media company for us, media exists in a variety of forms. Theme parks and amusement parks are a form of media. So I'm like, yeah. okay, how can I take that feeling I felt just as a general human being um, and apply that to uh, the Black experience and form that connection uh, with others in order to inspire different ways of thinking and being in the world. So that moment of awe, um, you know, click another light bulb in my head about ways that connection can be formed and action could be achieved. Yeah. Yeah. That's terrific. I, 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 listen, I, I'll be the first to buy my season pass for this amusement park when y'all find it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Season ticket holder. I like that. Season ticket I got holder. You. That's it. I'll get you a deal too, man. I got you. Yeah, just give me give me one of them things where I could just like skip the line and get onto the ride. Yeah, I, I got you. Right. I got you. We're gonna call it the the Garvey Pass, and you're gonna be right That's up it. there. Yeah, yeah. Give me one of the Garvey Passes. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I want to ask you a, a question. Uh, I I love to ask um, everyone who who comes through and, and has a chat. I want you to imagine um, that you're hosting a dinner. And you can invite four guests. They can be dead or living, fictional or real people. Julian, who are you bringing to this dinner? Four is tough. Okay. Yeah, it is. It is. I'll admit that. I want to bring more. So I'm trying to think. Okay, so Harriet Tubman. Mm -hmm. Queen Zynga. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Marcus Garvey. Uh Uh-huh. Dave Chappelle. All right. <laughs> threw, us, threw us a little curveball at the end with that one. With Dave popping up. <laughs> he went like, you know. historic figure, historic figure, historic figure, contemporary. Like, I was like, all right. <laughs> uh, and I say that because 
so there's, there's work to be done, but it's also, you know, a dinner. So want to have some comedic relief, but from a place that causes yeah. you to deeply question really what, what we're saying, right? Everything, some right. things might make sense, some things might not. So you gotta, I think, you know, there's certain things that uh, comedians of his style and like him can question. And of course, agree, disagree. You, you start questioning too, like, huh, why do right. I believe this? Why do I do that? So to hold us accountable, right? So while we're talking to Garvey about nation building, while we're talking to um, Tubman about the logistics of getting free, we're talking to Quinn and Zynga about um, battle plans for uh, whatever needs to, to happen, um, or a, let's just call it strategy. I don't want to make it seem like there's a, you know, uh, anything physical that's right it's, it's what's the strategy part of it that can be applied to what's needed to build civilizations and then you know how do we keep ourselves honest and have someone who can ask challenging and uncomfortable questions to mm. to with with a bit of humor to uh to to see it for so that's 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 uh that's what comes to mind for me yeah i get it i get it that's a strong group that's a really strong group let, let me ask you this. Um, what about you, man? Do you, have you? Is this a question oh, you usually ask? You have an answer for I, that. I, 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 I always say that my four changes every single day. Um, okay. And so, I generally have like Stevie Wonder's on my, at the table. He's there often. Magic Johnson is at the table often. Fannie Lou Hamer uh, gets a seat pretty often. And for the fourth, it really it, it varies. Like you said, Marcus Garvey. So Marcus Garvey, I won't I won't have him uh, show up twice. Um, but I I feel uh, led to have as as my fourth today um, another another artist, uh, Dennis Brown, who who is a fantastic um, singer, uh, Bob Marley's mm. favorite singer, uh, called the Crown mm. Prince of Reggae. And so I I, sure. I have uh, Dennis Brown at the table. Yeah. Okay. I'm to look. I'm, that's new to me. I'm not familiar with Dennis Brown. Oh, you want, listen, Julian. Once you start listening to Dennis, you won't want to stop. It, it's it's some okay. of the most beautiful music you, you'll ever hear. I can I can double down on that right now. I'm looking forward to it, man. I appreciate that. Thank you. Of course, of course. Wait, and real quick, curious, why Magic Johnson? You know what? Um, Magic Johnson is uh one of my favorite players of all time. Uh, I hold mm -hmm. him in my like basketball trinity with uh patrick ewing and steph um and mm. i i really appreciated him as a kid uh my reward for reading books was to get nba video vhs's and I, so i got to watch like all like the lakers celtics things that we were like obviously too young to watch in real time but i just like fell in love with how he played and then and just like he just had like a fun personality so i i just liked hearing him do interviews um when I was old enough to appreciate basketball, but then something about me getting uh, diagnosed with lupus uh, back in 2012 and mm. just draw, I think around that time, like when I was recovering from that first flare up, uh, they had ESPN used to have the 30 for 30 documentaries mm -hmm. and they had uh, a documentary on him announcing to the world in 1991 that he was HIV positive. Mm. And there's something really inspiring to me about this man and his courage to announce that he had this disease that at that time was pretty much announcing your death to everyone, right? Like, you know, there was no sense of the kinds of treatments um, that are available in, in the present day. 
there's something about him, you know, having the courage to do that and also persisting and being successful in his, his endeavors um, as a businessman and, and, and just uh, um, having like a philanthropic heart. He doesn't seem, as far as I know, I don't know him for real, but like as far as, far as I can tell, he seems to be someone who wants to make the world a better place. And mm. I just really appreciate that about him and just really, uh, you know, having, uh, living with a chronic illness, like I'm inspired by the fact yeah. that, you know, we don't know him best for being a survivor of HIV. That's not like the number one thing, like post basketball, mm-hmm. he he's found a way to like give himself another act. And I just really am inspired by that. You know? That's dope. Yeah. I can imagine that'd be a powerful dinner party guest for sure. Appreciate oh, for sure. that. For sure, for sure. So yeah, and uh, I, I joke uh, that my my birthday uh, compatriots, uh, the famous ones at least, would all be great dinner guests. It's uh, him and Steve Martin and Halle Berry. So like, any any of those three would just you know they they make their way to the group from time to time. <laughs> Steve Martin, that's I like that's unexpected, but that's that's dope. And of course, Halle Berry. Oh, 100%. okay. 100%. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's how it goes, man. Um, before so, before I, um uh we go, I just want to ask you, ultimately, man, like, what do you think is your hope for the world? Like, like, wh- where do you find your hope? Yeah, so I'm hopeful because as a student of history, I know that we are here for a very small blip in the grand scheme of mm-hmm. things uh, in terms of how long this earth has been existing, how long the universe has been in existence, and that change is constant and ongoing. The world is going to look different and different and different the more time goes on. And so I'm hopeful and inspired knowing that we have the opportunity to contribute to that and the things that we see today the the conditions we exist in the way we're experiencing our humanity today um, could look different tomorrow and we could be the reasons for that and so i'm hopeful because i believe it is possible to get a critical mass of people to take liberating actions in the best interest of their community. Uh, When I speak of the black community, I know that we have something special to contribute, one, to our community, and then two, to the world. I think, actually, that the world under the current uh, dominant society is headed for it's not headed to a good place. I'll say that. No, I, I don't you. believe it's going in a direction that will keep humanity here right? for as long as we probably could be. Um, and I believe that different voices, different experiences, different expressions of being and knowing and existing as humans in this world um and as spirits in this world and in these forms. I think there needs to be more of that elevated 
in order for us as humans to ultimately get to a point where uh, we can be and exist um, in a a greater way than we mm-hmm. currently are and where I believe we're headed to if things stay exactly the same in terms of uh, power and other factors. So I'm hopeful because I know that we have the power to do something um, and on a daily basis. I know if I'm working, I'm just, I'm one person and see others around me working. There's others I don't know and don't see that I know it working. So I'm hopeful because um, I see many that are not just resting in that oppression consciousness, but also taking action on that mm-hmm. victory consciousness. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And just reminding us of, of the necessity of victory consciousness. Um, it, what you're saying resonates with uh, something that <clears throat> I say, and admittedly it has a theological underpinning, but I often talk about and preach about this whole understanding of wickedness having an expiration date. And I think that's lockstep mm. with a victory consciousness for sure. For sure. I like that wickedness having an, wickedness having an expiration date. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna borrow that. Yeah, Thank absolutely. you for that. Just cite the sources, yeah. brother. And it's all right. Yeah, I got you. I got you. That is chapter told me that one. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Let them know. Let them know. <laughs> yeah, hey, brother. So, how can we, um, for for those who haven't already um been, been locked in with Push Black, how can we um be supporting and stay uh, stay aware of what you all have coming up? Yep. So. Easiest way is to go to pushblack.org. From there, you'll be able to see all the other places that we exist um, and produce and distribute media. If you're on, you know, if you're a reader, we got stuff for readers. If you like to text, we got text. If you like to watch stuff, we got video. We got to listen, we got podcasts. So we're trying to exist in all the major platforms and formats that um, we consume media and we're growing and growing. So whatever you do, whatever your preferred form of media engagement is, we, um, we either have something for you already or we're working towards that uh, with the goal of getting enough supporters from our community and part, what we call contributors yeah. subscribers to um, help us build this, right? We, folks contribute resources towards us continuing to build and provide this service and these products we do for the community. So if you like what you are getting from Push Black, it's going to always be free, um, but yeah. we also appreciate contributions that help us continue to uh, build and expand and reach more people. So check us out, pushblack.org. Um, and then from there, you can find the other places to consume our media. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Well, you, you heard it straight here first. Go to pushblack.org and and, and, and learn more. Um, enrich yourself and, and just uh, encourage yourself and, and inform yourself along the way. Um, Julian, it is an honor and a joy to have you here today, brother. And uh, thank you so much. I want to thank you all um, for, for watching and listening. Uh, once again, uh, please make sure that you check us out on YouTube, subscribe, give us a like, comments on Spotify, 
and Apple. Make sure you rate us. And also on Substack, baddestchaplain.substack.com. If you're not subscribed yet, uh, please make sure you go ahead and subscribe. We have a free path and a, and a, uh, a paid uh, path as well. Choose your path, of course. Um, it is all up to you. Thank you all so much for being with us. And until next time, uh, be well and take care. <laughs>